The following episode of Lyrics of Their Life contains strong adult themes and is suitable for mature audiences only. It also deals with serious incidents that may be distressing to some. If you at any time require support, please contact your local crisis centre. Hello and welcome back to Lyrics of Their Life, The Kurt Cobain Story, Part 2. To get the best experience possible, I highly recommend tuning into Part 1 of the story first, as the story flows on from there. In Part 1, we covered Kurt's childhood and teen years, all the way to Nirvana's first taste of success with their debut album Bleach. After parting ways with drummer Chad Channing, Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic began searching for the perfect drummer to fill that role. So let's jump straight back into the story. I'm your host Adam Hampton, and this is Lyrics of Their Life. With Nirvana on the hunt for a new full-time drummer, Dale Crover of the Melvins returned once again for eight shows in August of 1990. This was followed by Dan Peters of Mudhoney on drums, filling in for just the one show in Seattle during September. While Nirvana searched for their new drummer so they could return to the recording studio for their second full-length album. While Dan Peters filled in on drums, Nirvana recorded a standalone single titled Sliver that was released during September of 1990. With Kurt deciding he wanted to write the craziest but most straightforward pop rock song he could, he penned this track during rehearsals about a deserted child being left at their grandparents' house and featured the iconic line, Grandma take me home, and refers to eating mashed potato, ice cream, and trying to stomach his meat before kicking and screaming that he wants his mother. The track is said to be a nod towards Kurt's experiences growing up, as he deep down wanted to live with his mother, but was constantly kicked out of home instead and sent to his extended family's homes to live or stay when they could no longer deal with him. The track would reach number 3 on the UK independent charts later in 1991 and hinted at the new pop-influenced approach Nirvana were headed in. Just a few months earlier, Buzz Osborne of the Melvins recommended that Kurt and Chris attend a Scream concert with him as he was a good friend of their drummer, Dave Grohl's. At the concert in San Francisco at the I-Beam Club during August of 1990, Buzz introduced Dave to Chris and Kurt where they hung out backstage. Around the time Nirvana was searching for a new drummer, Scream suddenly disbanded and Grohl was left without a job. Dave then called up Buzz Osborne and asked him for advice on what he should do next when Buzz decided to give Dave Kurt and Chris' number. After talking over the phone, Dave was invited to audition in Seattle during late September 1990 and he landed the job instantly, impressing Kurt and Chris, with Chris saying, We knew in two minutes that he was the right drummer. Dave Grohl's first impression of Nirvana was quote, I remember being in the same room with them and thinking, what, that's Nirvana? Are you kidding? Because on their record cover, they look like psycho lumberjacks. I was like, what, that little dude and that big motherfucker? You're kidding me. Grohl, who was two years younger than Kurt, was born in 1969 in Ohio 
but moved to Virginia where he spent his childhood and teen years. He too would come from a broken family and lived with his mother after his parents' divorce at the age of seven. Raised on the music of David Bowie and New Wave, Dave soon learnt to play guitar and would find punk rock music after his cousin introduced him to it. Dave would go on to play in a number of bands in his high school years, including one called Freak Baby, where he converted from guitar to drums, teaching himself how to play through punk music, the band Rush, and his greatest influence in one of the greatest drummers of all time, John Bonham of Led Zeppelin. After joining a number of other bands and playing in the Washington area, Grohl auditioned for Scream at the age of 17 and got the job despite lying about his age, as he claimed to be older. This led Grohl to meet the Melvins and Buzz Osborne while gigging on the scene, leading him to join Nirvana. Instantly Dave gelled with Nirvana, giving the band that hard-hitting tight sound and the classic Nirvana lineup of 23-year-old Kurt Cobain, 25-year-old Chris Novoselic and 21-year-old Dave Grohl was locked in. After feeling like Sub Pop were mismanaging the band's distribution and had insufficient funds for promoting them, as no minor indie label were able to buy them out of their contract, Nirvana searched for a major label after their latest sessions at Smart Studios started to gain interest. Nirvana soon got in contact with Soundgarden and Alice in Chains manager Suzanne Silver for advice, who helped link them up with her contacts to devise a way to get Nirvana a deal with a major label, eventually signing with David Geffen's label, DGC Records, in 1990, after they were impressed by their demo tape from the April recording sessions. Nirvana were now signed to a major label, and things looked promising for the young band. As Nirvana were now signed to DGC Records, they were given a budget of $65,000 to record their second studio album. Despite now being signed to a major label, the band was still not being paid handsomely for some time, and Kurt was growing tired of living in depressing old Olympia in his dirty apartment that he was now sharing with Dave Grohl. Kurt decided that he would relocate to Seattle, where the heroin started to flow. Kurt was shooting up at least once a week and would eventually call Chris to inform him that he might have a problem. Chris was quite concerned and worried about Kurt's welfare and would later say, I'm lucky I had beer and wine, Kurt had heroin. After previously entering the studio in April of 1990, Nirvana got back to work, this time with Grohl on drums, recording from May to June of 1991. Kurt was inspired to write more pop melodic tracks after listening to his favourite bands at the time such as R.E.M., The Pixies, The Smithereens and The Melvins. It was around this time that Kurt gave himself his first and only tattoo of a K positioned inside of a shield on his left forearm. Many believed it was representative of Kurt's name, but it was actually to represent an alternative record label he was fond of called K Records in the Washington area. And he said that it was also to represent his childhood as a reminder to stay young and never forget where he came from. In May of 1991, Kurt, Chris and Dave all moved into the Oakwood Apartments complex in LA, located near their new recording studio. Also staying at the apartments and keeping the band entertained were Swedish rock band Europe, known for their 1986 hit The Final Countdown. Nirvana would sit by the pool drinking beer and laughing at the Europe band members who were attempting to impress the local ladies while wearing nothing but speedos. Butch Vig, who was also working on a Smashing Pumpkins record at the same time, was once again hired by DGC Records after he was originally just going to be the sound engineer. 
This time around the band were recording at Sound City Recording Studios in Van Noyce, Los Angeles. The same studio that saw the likes of Neil Young, Fleetwood Mac and Guns N' Roses pass through there with success. Nirvana were in the studio on most occasions for 8-10 to hours at a time, with Kurt using a range of guitars including Stratocasters and Jaguars. Kurt's main instruction to Butch was that he wanted to sound heavy, but Kurt's biggest issue was with overdubbing, especially with the song In Bloom, as he found it fake and too fabricated, but upon learning that John Lennon utilised overdubs, thanks to a constant reminder by Butch, he changed his mind and happily recorded the overdubs, making for a more complete sound. Producer Butch Fig stated that Kurt was cooperative most of the time, with sessions running smoothly, but occasionally Cobain would take himself off and sit in the corner of the room for an hour. On the 17th of May, 1991, Butch called in a session early so they could all go out and enjoy a gig featuring three bands including L7, Red Cross and the Butthole Surfers at the Hollywood Palladium in Los Angeles. Little did they know that this wouldn't just be any old gig, and would ultimately change their lives forever. Chris drove himself, Butch, Kurt and Dave there, as Chris swigged on a bottle of Jack Daniels while driving. Luckily the band arrived with no issues, but soon enough, Butch soon lost the three Nirvana boys in every direction, and decided instead to catch a taxi back to his room. When the gig was over, Chris attempted to drive once again, and was arrested for driving while under the influence of alcohol, and placed in county lockup. Dave managed to find his own way back to the hotel, while Kurt made the seven-mile walk back to his room while drunk. Nirvana's manager, John Silver, was luckily able to bail Novoselic out after 16 hours in jail lockup. But while the band were at this concert, 24-year-old Kurt Cobain would cross paths with a fellow budding musician, none other than 27-year-old Courtney Love, who he had been acquainted with before, as the two talked music and drank alcohol and cough syrup together. While reports of when their first encounter vary, it is believed both Kurt and Courtney had been aware of one another when they first met back in 1989, when Nirvana supported a band Courtney went to see called the Dharma Bums in Portland, Oregon at the Citricon nightclub. It was here where they talked briefly and Courtney developed an infatuation for Kurt but at the time, he wasn't so interested, despite her coming on strong and sitting on his lap at a gig at the Metro in Chicago. They arranged to meet on a couple of dates, and Courtney was often flirtatious. But Kurt pulled back every time, while also stating, I was determined to be a bachelor for a few months, but I knew that I liked Courtney so much right away that it was a really hard struggle to stay away from her for so many months. After an encounter at the L7 concert in May of 1991, where Courtney playfully wrestled Kurt to the ground. Courtney would soon send Kurt, quote, a heart-shaped box scented with perfume, and inside a porcelain doll, three dried roses, a miniature teacup, and shellac-covered seashells. This was all included inside as an apology for her behaviour. The two were reacquainted through a mutual friend and began hanging out more frequently, bonding over their similar interests in art, their life story, music, and their use of heroin. They were seen as a couple by as early as December 1991, as Kurt began his third serious relationship, this time popping the question. While Nirvana toured the UK, it's believed that sometime around Christmas, most likely on the 10th of December, Kurt proposed to Courtney while tagging along with her at a whole gig at TJ's venue in Newport, Wales. 
Kurt felt that Courtney was magnetic. He was instantly attracted to her rebellious persona, and he found her to be intelligent and interesting. They would soon be married in two months, and would be welcoming a baby nine months after their engagement, practically falling pregnant around the time of their engagement. However, both Kurt and Courtney were leading destructive lives with severe mental health issues and at this point would only drive each other further into drugs. When Courtney came into Kurt's life, he was vulnerable and was longing to build a family and a home of his own after his own upbringing hadn't quite gone the way he would have wanted. Seeing Chris get married just a year or so prior seemed to push this desire further as Kurt searched for wife material in every woman he met. Courtney's life was arguably just as traumatic and chaotic as Kurt's, making the two a recipe for disaster. Courtney Love was born Courtney Michelle Harrison on July 9, 1964, in San Francisco, California, to her psychotherapist mother Linda and road crew manager father Hank, who worked for the band The Grateful Dead, with their bass player Phil Lesh being her godfather. Courtney would grow up in Hyatt, Ashbury, San Francisco, until her parents' divorce at age 6 in 1970. After an ugly custody battle involving claims that her father gave Courtney LSD, her mother was awarded full custody and relocated the family to Oregon. Soon her mother remarried a man named Frank, and Courtney was legally adopted by him to become her father. Courtney's mother and Frank soon had two daughters together, followed by a son who sadly passed away due to a heart defect when Courtney was 10. After this, they decided to adopt another boy to fill this hole. Just a year prior, Courtney was seen by a psychologist that recognised signs of autism as her grades were lacking at school as well as her social skills. Courtney was also raised in a gender-neutral household and described her parents as hippie types that often got around in the nude. Adding to the confusion, Courtney's mother soon split up with Frank and relocated the family to Nelson, New Zealand to live with her new partner before sending Courtney back to her adopted father Frank and family friends in Portland, Oregon after being expelled from school in New Zealand. After her mother's neglect and a few more half-siblings were born, Courtney felt replaced. This led to a run of rebellious behaviour as she was thrown in juvenile detention in Salem for shoplifting at age 14. It was during her stint in juvie where she discovered musicians such as Patti Smith, Fleetwood Mac and The Pretenders, prompting her to eventually start a band of her own. After her release from juvie, she would be placed in foster care until she was emancipated when she turned 16 and was left to fend for herself. She travelled to Japan to work as a topless dancer for a few months before being deported back to the US when her visa expired. When she returned to Portland, Oregon, she continued to work as a stripper where she adopted the last name Love to conceal her identity and worked as a DJ at gay and drag bars where she said she developed social skills and overcome her fears. Courtney then managed to enrol in university studying philosophy and English. Again, she was on the move to Liverpool in England and returned once more to the US, even recording some early work on vocals with Faith No More, but she was booted out in favour of a male singer. She went back to stripping this time in Taiwan and Hong Kong, where she first used heroin, where she said she naively mistook it for cocaine. After using a wealthy Filipino man for his money, after he tried to persuade her to come to the Philippines with him, she instead bought herself a ticket with his money back to Portland in the US. She played in a few more bands and started her acting career in New York by 1987, which is where Kurt first saw her starring in a film called Straight to Hell. 
She then quit acting after failing to land a number of roles and returned to stripping in Oregon before relocating to Alaska to strip for local fishermen and find herself again by getting away from it all. During this stay, she learned to play guitar and went back to LA where she eventually launched her career, forming the band Hole and working as a stripper in Hollywood during the band's early days. She named her band Hole in relation to a Greek mythology quote by Medea that was reproduced by Greek scholar Euripides, stating, There is a hole that pierces right through me, while also linking the name to the hole her mother left. Courtney's career was just beginning to take off with Hole as she first laid eyes on Kurt Cobain, who was still in his bleach days. She dated her bandmate and guitarist, Eric Erlinson, married a vocalist for a band called Leaving Trains, James Moreland, divorcing him soon after, and then dated Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins, all before dating Kurt. She would then release her debut album Pretty on the Inside with Hole during September of 1991, with their single Teenage Whore reaching number one on the UK indie chart. Kurt and Courtney would now form a powerful couple that had media outlets waiting to pounce for their next big story. Their chaotic lives would soon be front and centre on newspapers and magazines all over the world. After Nirvana's big night out at the Hollywood Palladium and Chris was released from lockup, they were able to resume recording at Sound City and by June, their budget for the album had almost doubled to $122,000, giving them more room to move. The original title for the new album was going to be called Sheep, as a joke reference to the type of people Kurt Fort would buy the album, but eventually Kurt grew tired of the name towards the end of the recording process, opting instead to call it Nevermind, which was a metaphor that he lived by and his attitude to life. It was also grammatically incorrect, which Kurt liked about it, and was also a reference to one of Kurt's favourite albums, Here's the Sex Pistols, with their track Nevermind the Bollocks. The album cover art would become known as one of the most iconic of all time, with the image of a nude baby boy swimming under the water with his arms outstretched as a US dollar bill is being dangled in front of him with a fishing hook. The album artwork is great symbolism to capture the way humans in society are expected to act and are trained to always go for the money as young as possible, no matter the cost. Kurt revealed that he came up with the idea after watching a television show about water births with Dave Grohl. When Kurt proposed the idea of a water birth theme, the record label decided it would be too graphic for an album cover and instead opted for the album artwork we see today, despite David Geffen worrying it was too offensive due to the cover displaying the boy's penis, so alternate album covers were also made later on to blur out or remove the penis. Kurt would design the back cover art and even manage to blend in an image of Kiss from their Love Gun album standing on top of a slab of beef if you look closely enough. The boy who posed for the front cover shot, named Spencer Eldon, would star once again on the 25th anniversary reissue of Nevermind and even elected to go nude once again but the record label insisted he wears shorts this time around. After some final mixing adjustments from Slayer co-producer Andy Wallace, Nirvana were finally happy with their finished product. Little did they know that their lives were about to rapidly change forever. From August to early September of 1991, Nirvana began to promote their upcoming album Nevermind by travelling to England, Ireland, Belgium, Germany and the Netherlands. On August 27th, 1991, the track Smells Like Teen Spirit was first heard on radio and was officially released to the public on the 10th of September, 1991. 
At first, the single struggled to chart and only sold well in parts of the USA, where Nirvana had built a solid following already. Initially, Smells Like Teen Spirit was expected to be just the build-up single to Come As You Are, which was being marketed as their likeliest biggest hit. But after college, alternative and rock radio stations started to play Teen Spirit on repeat, more and more people rushed out to buy the single. But it would be Nirvana's epic music video for Smells Like Teen Spirit that would catapult them into the mainstream and on the path to success. The music video was directed by rookie Samuel Bayer, who was hired due to his poor test reel, as they wanted someone more raw and punk-like, rather than corporate and polished, to capture the angsty song lyrics and Kurt's vision perfectly. Kurt originally wanted to take control of directing it himself, and grew so frustrated over his level of involvement that he got drunk on set. The video was filmed on the 17th of August 1991 at GMC Studios in Culver City, LA costing the band $30,000 to $50,000 to create. Nirvana recruited the students for the video at a gig held two nights earlier in LA at the Roxy Theatre as they posted up flyers stating, Nirvana needs you to appear in their upcoming music video. You should be 18 to 25 years old and adopt a high school persona, i.e. preppy, punk, nerd, jock. Be prepared to stay for several hours. Come support Nirvana and have a great time. While Bayer also recruited the cheerleaders seen in the clip from a local strip club, hence why they were dancing so seductively. Influenced by the Ramones Rock and Roll High School and Kurt's favourite film, Over the Edge, the video would feature Kurt Cobain straddling his favourite Fender Mustang guitar as Nirvana appeared to play at a pep rally held by screaming wild students with cheerleaders in black dresses displaying the anarchist symbol on their outfits as they shake pom-poms and an old janitor stands by in overalls, slouching over, as he cleans the gymnasium floor and dances, which was a nod to Kurt's days as a janitor himself. Dave is seen hitting the drums as hard as he can, while Chris stands to the back swaying back and forth as he plays that iconic deep bass riff. The song acts as an anthem of rebellion for the youth, aimed at teens that feel exactly like Kurt did. During the video, the students were originally seated, but began dancing violently like a mosh pit, which was due to the fact that they had been sitting all afternoon for around 12 hours in the same spot, watching retake after retake, and were growing restless and frustrated, resulting in pure chaos. Most of their antics were actually off the cuff, and based off of real frustration, as they crowd surfed and began hanging off the props such as the basketball hoop, and joined in with Kurt in smashing equipment. As director Bayer said, nobody wanted to be there for more than half an hour, and I needed them for 12 hours. By the 11th hour when the band had had it with me, and the kids were so angry with me, they said, can we destroy the set? Kurt would have the final say on the editing of the video, opting to keep the shot of him at the end, after it was going to be left out. As Kurt ends the epic song with an iconic scream into the camera for the final note, as the smoke rises around him. On MTV late at night, on the alternative rock program called 120 Minutes, the video for Smells Like Teen Spirit aired for the very first time. It proved so popular that it was placed into the daytime slot. By the end of 1991, it was a mega hit topping music video charts and living on as one of the greatest and most played videos of all time, being viewed on YouTube over 1 billion times. The music video for Smells Like Teen Spirit would work wonders for MTV financially, with Nirvana becoming the perfect face for MTV and making the station loads of money through increased viewership and sponsored advertising. Nirvana PR, Anton Brooks, 
said it didn't matter what time of day or night you turned on MTV, Teen Spirit was on. You'd walk down the street and you'd hear it on the radio. You'd walk into a shop or a bar and it would be blaring out. Everywhere you went, it was there. It was surreal. Dave Grohl said, I thought it was just another album cut, but the video made a big difference. That's when you'd turn up to a 500 capacity gig and there'd be another 500 extra people out there. We were still in our little bubble, we were in our van, the three of us. Chris' wife Shelley, our monitor guy Craig Montgomery, and Monty Lee Wilkes, our tour manager. And it didn't seem like anything unusual was happening until you'd get to the gig and it was chaos. The video had attracted a new widespread audience and the mania surrounding Nirvana was compared to the likes of the Beatles as they seemed to forge a new era of influential music and seemingly bringing rock music back to the mainstream. The song itself was a great mix of alternative rock and pop music that introduced grunge or garage rock to mainstream listeners. Kurt set the world alight with his incredible, emotive and painful screaming vocals accompanied by one of the most recognisable guitar riffs and bass lines of all time. The song resonated with like-minded teenagers experiencing similar feelings, making Kurt and Nirvana icons in the eyes of their listeners, despite Kurt not wanting this responsibility. Once Nevermind was released, Smells Like Teen Spirit would go to number one in four countries, including New Zealand, France, Belgium and Spain, while also charting in the top spot on the alternative charts in the US. From 1991 to 1992, it would find its way to the top five in nine countries, including Australia and Germany, and charted at number six in the US and seven in the UK on their mainstream pop charts. Smells Like Teen Spirit would go on to sell over 6 million copies, going two times platinum in the UK and platinum in the US. It also went two Grammy nominations for Best Rock Song and Best Hard Rock Performance, would become known as their first alternative song to become a hit on the mainstream charts, paving the way for similar bands to follow in their footsteps, and was recognised as unique for its alternating sound from soft to loud and back to soft and so on. This structure would become a regular occurrence on future Nirvana tracks. Smells Like Teen Spirit would be turned into a parody later in 1992 by Weird Al Yankovic, renaming it Smells Like Nirvana after seeking Kurt's approval, adding to the pop culture surrounding the song. Kurt was believed to be a big fan of the parody version that made fun of Kurt's lyrics and mumbling voice, while in the parody's music video, the same actor that played the role as the janitor is utilised once again, but this time is seen dancing in a tutu. There would be many questions over what the song actually meant, with Kurt often slurring his words during the song, as Kurt revealed about the rebellious nature of the song in a number of interviews, that it was, quote, to describe what I felt about my surroundings and my generation and people my age. The entire song is made up of contradictory ideas, it's just making fun of the thought of having a revolution, but it's a nice thought. Kurt also stated that it was related to his friends, most likely referring to his time with Toby Vale, stating, We still feel as if we're teenagers because we don't follow the guidelines of what's expected of us to be adults. It also has kind of a teen revolutionary theme. The story goes that Kurt discovered the phrase smells like teen spirit back when he was dating Toby Vale of Bikini Kill. The night Kurt discovered the phrase, he was out with Bikini Kill lead singer Kathleen Hanna and Kurt had been drinking and decided to spray paint the phrase, God is gay, on a local Seattle Catholic religious centre for telling women they would go to hell for getting abortions. 
When they returned to Kurt's house that he was renting, Kathleen wrote in permanent marker all over Kurt's wall and graffitied in spray paint on the wall above Kurt's bed, writing the phrase, Kurt smells like teen spirit. After noticing what Kathleen had done, Kurt jotted down the phrase in his journal, thinking it was a great angsty teen rebellion slogan, and would later ask her to use the phrase. But Kathleen had actually been referring to a new type of women's deodorant called teen spirit that Kurt's girlfriend Toby had been wearing, and of course her scent had been rubbing off onto Kurt. The line she's overboard and self-assured is said to be a direct reference to Toby Vale and her personality, and the two would often talk about anarchism, which links up with the symbols on the cheerleaders' dresses. Kurt would also reveal the influence the underrated band The Pixies played on creating this song, as he said, I was trying to write the ultimate pop song. I was basically trying to rip off The Pixies, I have to admit it. When I heard the Pixies for the first time, I connected with that band so heavily that I should have been in that band. Or at least a Pixies cover band. We used their sense of dynamics being soft and quiet and then loud and hard. Despite all the success the song brought the band, they would later grow to hate the song and occasionally would remove it from set lists as they wanted to weed out the jocks they had attracted to the band and felt it started to define them. For them it was a step too far into the pop scene as it would go on to be one of the most played songs on radio, even to this day. What Kurt had hated about the mainstream, and what he wrote about in the song would turn out to be just that, as Chris revealed, Kurt really despised the mainstream. That's what Smells Like Teen Spirit was all about, the mass mentality of conformity. As Smells Like Teen Spirit went nuts, the album Nevermind was officially released on the 24th of September, 1991. Nirvana were that fired up that just about a week earlier on the 13th of September, they got kicked out of their own album launch party after Kurt covered Chris in ranch dressing during a food fight and then set off a fire extinguisher at a second party. That same night, Nirvana debuted their new and now famous logo featuring a zonked out yellow, have a nice day smiley face with X's for eyes and a tongue poking out of its squiggly mouth. It was said that Kurt drew up the logo after they noticed a large sign outside a Seattle strip club called Lusty Lady that had a similar looking smiley face next to the phrase, have an erotic day. Many associated with Nirvana and GDC Records predicted that Nevermind would sell just double of the amount Bleach had sold up to this point with 40,000 copies, but with David Geffen's doubts, he pressed just 46,000 in the US. Shipments of 46,000 copies were sent to US stores, while 35,000 were sent to the UK. The Nirvana boys didn't think the album would be a game changer, and thought it was just a good solid album. David Geffen of DGC Records hoped at best they would sell 250,000 copies, and maybe 500,000 by this time next year, if they were lucky. To Geffen and Nirvana's pleasant surprise, US stores quickly sold out of the album for days and more shipments were acquired ASAP. As Smells Like Teen Spirit started gaining more and more popularity, both on radio and MTV, sales started flowing in and the album went from its debut position of 144 on the US Billboard chart to number 6 by the end of 1991. The band had become so big that their European shows were oversold, with unsafe numbers of people jamming into venues, and media began circulating the band as the circus began. Kurt, Dave and Chris would reject their sudden success, and often play down how big they were becoming. Albums started selling so fast that GDC Records hardly had a chance to implement their promotional strategies. On October 31st, 1991, 
when Nirvana returned to their home base for a gig in Seattle at the Paramount Theatre. For their first show there, since Smells Like Teen Spirit's release, they had reached number 39 on the charts. They had sold 500,000 copies over their first two months with hardly any promotion, and the album went gold in the US. What seemed like overnight success turned these garage band musicians into pop superstars, and it would prove too much for Kurt, who was already fragile. In an interview on November 2nd, 1991, on MTV, Kurt appeared in drag wearing a bright frilled dress alongside Chris and sat quietly allowing Chris to do most of the talking. On the 28th of November, they performed on top of the Pops for the first time. By January 11th, 1992, Nevermind had jumped into the number one spot on the US Billboard chart for the very first time, fending off Michael Jackson's highly successful album, Dangerous proving a new powerhouse was infiltrating pop music. With Nevermind selling at insane rates during this period, with 300 to 400,000 copies flying off shelves every week, blowing their initial hopes of a measly 500,000 copies by September 1992 out of the water. By January 2nd, 1992, they had already sold 2 million copies. Nirvana would go on to sell over 30 million copies to this day, placing it as the 29th best-selling album of all time. The album reached number one in seven countries, including the US, and number two in six countries, including Australia and New Zealand. The album also reached diamond status in the US with over 10 million sales, diamond in Canada and France, seven times platinum in New Zealand, six times platinum in the UK, and five times platinum in Australia and Denmark, and received almost perfect reviews from critics across the world. It is now ranked number 6 by Rolling Stone in their 500 Greatest Albums of All Time, which was updated in 2020. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi everyone, and sorry to interrupt. I hope you're enjoying this episode, but I just wanted to take this opportunity to tell you four ways on how you can support the podcast and play your part in keeping it going, so I can continue to bring you more great episodes. If you enjoy Lyrics of Their Life podcast, first of all, it would be greatly appreciated if you could subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It's totally free to do. It just means that you will receive a notification when a new episode of the podcast becomes available. Secondly, you can leave the podcast a positive five-star review on iTunes as this helps the podcast reach a larger audience. Third of all, you can tell your friends all about the podcast or join us on our social media pages at Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. While finally, you can take your support one step further and head to our Patreon page and pledge your support to one of two of our plans for just $1 or $5 per month with no locking contract. Or you can pledge just a one-off payment for all the hard work that goes into creating the podcast. And you will receive a number of extra benefits to go with your donation. Or, you can even buy me a beer for $5 at buymeacoffee.com forward slash lyrics of life pod. I am a totally independent podcast creator, meaning there are no large networks or businesses financially supporting my work. So your support would be greatly appreciated, as it means I can continue creating more content, such as biographies, the weekly muse, interviews, and more, as it takes a lot of time, resources, and research to prepare and upload just one single episode. Links to Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee can be found in the show notes on our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com or on our Facebook page. Once again, I appreciate every one of my listeners for their support, no matter the form it comes in. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the episode. 
In January of 1992, Nirvana released an EP titled Hormoning that reached number two on the Australian album chart and included six tracks with four cover songs and two written by Cobain, Grohl and Nova Selich. The covers included Turnaround by Devo, Molly's Lips and Son of a Gun by The Vaselines and D7 by The Wipers, while the originals included Even in His Youth that explores Kurt's struggles for acceptance from his father and never feeling good enough, while the other track titled Aneurysm became both a favourite of Kurt's and a crowd favourite. In this song, Kurt once again sings about Toby Vale of Bikini Kill with the line, Love you so much, makes me sick referring to how attracted Kurt felt towards Toby and that he was instantly head over heels, vomiting because she made him so nervous. The EP overall worked wonders as Nirvana Mania was in full motion. In order to keep the sales coming in, on the 2nd of March 1992, the second single from the album Nevermind, titled Come As You Are, was released to the public. The song would reach the top 10 in 9 countries including the UK and New Zealand, and was said to be about the time Kurt fished his stepdad's guns out of the Wishka River and cleaned them up to sell after his mother had thrown them in there after a domestic which was suggested in the music video with a revolver floating on the water and a lyric, come doused in mud. The song also had a type of psychedelic somber underwater feel to it which Kurt managed to produce the sound by using an electroharmonics small clone guitar chorus pedal. This was accompanied by Dave Grohl's always reliable drumming and an incredible bass line from Christ that's a catchy enough hook to hum along to. Kurt also stated that the song was intentionally contradictory, which is evident in the line, take your time, hurry up, choice is yours, don't be late. Kurt says the song was also meant to be about people and what they are expected to act like, which continues on with the themes of people being sheep and conforming to society's ways. The memorable line, I swear that I don't have a gun, would later cause controversy around the time of his death, with some believing he was trying to hint that he was suicidal, but this simply wasn't the case. The lyric doused in mud, soaked in bleach, is also a reference to HIV or AIDS, and urging heroin users to clean their needles, with the original slogan on this particular advertisement being, if doused in mud, soak in bleach while the phrase come as you are was adopted from a slogan used at a hotel called the Mork in Aberdeen that Kurt stayed at when he had nowhere to live. The next single that came off Nevermind was titled Lithium and managed to reach number one in Finland and the top ten in a further three countries. Kurt revealed that the story behind Lithium was about a man whose wife passes away and in order to stop himself from taking his own life, he turns to religion to save himself. While Kurt stated many times that it was just fictional, it does bear some similarities to Kurt's life, as he did state, I did infuse some of my personal experiences, like breaking up with girlfriends and having bad relationships. While he did also potentially save his life when his friend Jesse Reed and his religious family took Kurt in, as he revealed to biographer Michael Azarad, I've always felt that some people should have religion in their lives, that's fine. If it's going to save someone, it's okay and the person in Lithium needed it. This perhaps suggests that Kurt is in fact referring to himself in some way, and that the man that needed saving was in fact him. Another interesting fact is that Lithium is a drug used to treat the mental health disorder bipolar, which many close to Kurt believed he was suffering with, despite never being diagnosed, as his moods and depression were very up and down throughout his life. It is said that in the early recording stages of Lithium, when Chad Channing was still a member, 
A rift between Chad and Kurt was formed over the way Chad was drumming on the track. While making matters worse, Kurt strained his voice, halting recording. By the end of 1992, Nirvana were the hottest band on the scene. While bands such as Faith No More, Jane's Addiction, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins and Alice in Chains were already building solid followings. Nirvana were able to open the door to mainstream success for alternative rock and grunge bands, but while it was handy to be successful, it was frowned upon for punk and grunge bands to go global and pop. By the time Nevermind sold over 10 million copies, Kurt and Nirvana would often reject their success and popularity and would often dismiss just how good their album was. On the 30th of November, 1992, they released the brilliant track, In Bloom. The single's artwork would feature a sonogram of Kurt and Courtney's unborn child and the track would go to number 5 on the mainstream rock chart and 7 on the Irish mainstream chart, rounding off one of the most successful albums of the decade. Kurt would live a childhood dream during the music video as Kurt, Chris and Dave act as though they are the Beatles playing to a rowdy female crowd during the 60s as they seem cool, calm and collected before busting out with their hard-hitting grunge style during the chorus. Dave would provide backing vocals on the track with Butch Fig double-tracking Kurt and Dave's vocals making for a great combination during the chorus. In Bloom was yet another track that shifts from quiet to loud verses Cobain wrote the track as an attack on those macho types and jocks and the way they show little tolerance to those that are different such as misfits or homosexuals. For example, Kurt and his bandmates wore dresses during the film clip just to piss off and scare away those types. While the lines, he's the one who likes all our pretty songs and he likes to sing along and he likes to shoot his gun but he knows not what it means refers to the jocks in question that have become their fans and sing along blindly without actually knowing that their music is actually against bullies and homophobes and that they are just too simple to figure it out. Kurt further commented on this in a 1992 interview stating, For ages I thought I might be homosexual because I didn't like the cheerleader type of girl or want to hang out with the jock boys. I chose to live the life of a recluse. I didn't hang out with anyone else because I couldn't handle their stupidity. Other great songs from the album include the highly underrated, repetitive but catchy track, Breed. It was originally named Imodium, named after the type of medication that Tad Doyle of the band Tad was taking for diarrhea. Kurt changed the name and wrote it back in 1989, playing it live in October that year, becoming a crowd favourite that got everyone fired up and was said to be about apathy amongst teenagers in society with their lack of enthusiasm and feeling trapped in middle class America. One of the more darker and controversial songs to come out of Kurt's songwriting on Nevermind was the track titled Polly, that Kurt disguised by using a cracker-eating parrot named Polly as a metaphor for the real-life kidnapping of a 14-year-old girl at Knife Point at a rock concert at the Community World Theatre that occurred in Tacoma in June 1987 by an evil man named Gerald Friend. As Kurt sings, Polly wants a cracker, think I should get off her first, think she wants some water to put out the blowtorch. It isn't me. Have some seed. Let me clip your dirty wings. Let me take a ride. Cut yourself. Want some help? Please myself. Got some rope. Have been told. Promise you have been true. The man sexually abused and tortured the girl with a blowtorch while tied to a suspended chair, but she luckily escaped when he took her for a drive in his truck and stopped to fuel up. 
As she leaped from the vehicle and gathered the attention of people nearby, the man drove off but was caught days later, leading to the repeat offender's arrest and serving two consecutive 75-year imprisonments. Like his previous song Paper Cuts, Kurt displayed his ability to once again write from other people's perspectives and experiences, as Kurt wrote Polly both from the kidnapper's point of view and from the girl's perspective, as she pretended to come onto her captor to earn his trust before breaking free. Bob Dylan even commented on his work stating, That kid has soul. As dark and disturbing as the lyrics are, they were extremely smart and witty and displayed just how great a songwriter he could be. Kurt discovered the story in a newspaper at the time, originally naming it Hitchhiker and Cracker before calling it Polly, where he wrote and recorded the track himself in 1988. The track Territorial Pissings is a fast-paced punk track which takes yet another shot at jocks and macho men and their sexist ways, while also speaking about the injustice surrounding the way Native Americans have been treated in the Aberdeen, Washington area. The line, never met a wise man, if so, it's a woman. This once again displays Kurt's feminist views, which Toby Vale influenced significantly with the Riot Girl movement, along with Courtney Love's strong feminist views also. Along with a track named Aneurysm, the track Drain You would be Kurt's favourite Nirvana song, and one that he enjoyed playing live. The song was said to have been written post-breakup with Toby Vale, with the line, It is now my duty to completely drain you, referring to what Toby took from Kurt, while other theories suggest that the song was to do with Kurt's heroin use. The track Lounge Act was also about Kurt's breakup with Toby Vale, and struggling to let her go, as he can still smell her scent of teen spirit deodorant. The album continues with the track Stay Away, which mentions Kurt's favourite graffiti phrase, God is gay, and the track On a Plane that Kurt wrote about writer's block when trying to write songs on a plane. But rounding out the epic Nevermind album was a deeply depressing but moving track called Something in the Way. This track could arguably be Kurt's most underrated track of his career. In one of Kurt's most autobiographical songs of his whole career, the song delves into Kurt's time in Aberdeen when he was homeless after his parents kept kicking him out as he sings about living under the Young Street Bridge on the Wishka River. While Kurt didn't live directly under the bridge, he did sleep in nearby bushes and would usually smoke pot and go fishing under the bridge. As the lyrics state, Underneath the bridge, the tarp has sprung a leak and the animals I've trapped have all become my pets and I'm living off of grass and the drippings from the ceiling. But it's okay to eat fish, cause they don't have any feelings. Before singing the line, something in the way, before letting out some mournful moans and hums. The phrase something in the way refers to his depression, but not knowing how to actually deal with it or understand it, and that something is always stopping him from feeling better. Utilising a cello for the song and Kurt's extremely low tone vocals, Kurt captures the emotion and depressing feeling as though the listener is under the bridge, in his shoes, feeling lost, cold, alone, and hopeless, as he paints the picture with his descriptive lyrics and painstakingly beautiful vocals. According to Butch Fig, Kurt sung the vocals so low in the studio that he had to amplify them significantly. As Nevermind quickly transformed Nirvana into megastars, Nirvana were required to tour heavily, which angered and overwhelmed Kurt. While he loved performing to the misfits just like him, and said, I'm playing to kids in general wherever they're from, we all think the same things. 
Kurt hated being on the road, and the new added pressure of the media watching everything you do, waiting for you to slip up, added to this pressure. People started looking up to Kurt like he was godlike, or a leader of a movement, and while Kurt would have wanted to help those like him through his music, he fought back hard with the attention he was getting, playing down their success and talent as it was becoming too big for him to handle. While he enjoyed certain aspects of fame, he didn't enjoy it all and persisted with driving a second-hand car, wearing second-hand clothes, living in normal everyday houses, visiting family and trying to stay as grounded as possible. Kurt and Nirvana were now pin-ups on the front covers of magazines such as Rolling Stone and stories posted in newspapers started to filter out about their personal lives, in particular the most fragile and intriguing member of Nirvana, Kurt Cobain. One particular problem though was the easy access both financially and due to the industry he was in to acquire heroin, adding to his addiction troubles, spending around $400 a day on the drug. Kurt was also dealing with his chronic stomach pain while touring America and would describe it as a nauseating stomach flu, like a throbbing heartbeat in your stomach and he even stated in an interview that he wanted to blow his head off it hurt that much. It was clear that all these factors started to weigh down Kurt as bad thoughts began entering his mind more frequently and his journal entries began to get darker. Media outlets began running stories on Kurt and Courtney's personal lives, claiming they were junkies, labelling them the king and queen of alternative rock, and releasing all sorts of scandals and fake news, which only added to their stress and drug habits worsening, as they encouraged each other to shoot up. From August of 1991 to February of 1992, Nirvana would tour the Nevermind album, performing 102 shows across the US, UK, Europe, Canada, Mexico, Japan, and even Australia, Hawaii, and New Zealand, for the only time in their career. They performed with some big names on the bill, including Smashing Pumpkins, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam, Sonic Youth, and Courtney's band Hole. The tour had many memorable moments including the inaugural Big Day Out concert in Sydney, Australia and the band's first Reading Festival in England on Little John's Farm during August of 1991. During October of 1991 at a gig in Dallas, Texas at Trees Club, Kurt and one of his bouncers got in a heated fight after Kurt attempted to crowd surf with the bouncer reacting aggressively by pushing Kurt back onto the stage, palming him in the face. Kurt retaliated by smashing the bouncer in the face with the bottom end of his guitar as Kurt attempts to get back up. The bouncer then punched Kurt in the back of the head before Dave and Chris came to Kurt's aid. On January 11th, 1992, the same weekend that Nevermind went to number one on the US Billboard 200, Nirvana had a huge opportunity to make a name for themselves and made their first appearance on the popular and iconic US TV show, Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live had always been a favourite show of Kurt's while growing up, and it was a dream of his to perform on the show. With Kurt now sporting his dyed red hair, they began the performance by singing Smells Like Teen Spirit before breaking into territorial pissings, and ended the track by trashing the set. Luckily the amplifiers were replaced just before the performance ended, as the feedback from Kurt's guitar rings through the studio. He then stabs their stack of amplifiers with the neck of his guitar, while Dave trashes his drum set, almost collecting Chris in the process, as he throws him down from his platform. It was a moment that spoke volumes across America that night, as Nirvana rose as a figurehead for Generation X. As the show came to an end, and the guests made their way out to say goodbye to the audience, a romantic saxophone theme tune plays as Chris takes an opportune moment to add some off-the-cuff humour to the viewer's experience, 
and turns Dave around and starts French kissing him before Kurt joins in, kissing Chris, and is then spun around in the arms of Dave. The hilarious but awkward moment landing them in hot water as they cut the credits short and would not replay the moment on later reruns of the episode. Despite this, Kurt and his bandmates laughed it off, with Kurt stating it was a great way to piss off the rednecks and homophobes. That night, Kurt had been on heroin, and during the photo shoot before the show, he was seen almost falling asleep and out of it. He appeared sickly and pale, had droopy eyes, and was in no shape to perform, but somehow pulled through. After the show concluded, Kurt skipped the after party and headed back to his hotel room in New York to shoot some heroin that he had scored earlier during the day from New York's seedy Alphabet City district. Known as China White Heroin, Kurt procured it during the day in preparation for an after-show shoot-up. The morning after their debut appearance on Saturday Night Live, Kurt overdosed for the first time on heroin, almost killing himself, only to be resuscitated by Courtney after she found him in a bad way at 7am the following morning. In order to revive him, she punched him in the stomach and poured water over his face to bring him back. Kurt was apparently lifeless, and this would be just the start of Kurt's major battles with addiction and the media storm that was about to come his way. Rumours had already been circling about whether or not he was a heroin user, but the overdose was kept rather quiet. After Nevermind dropped out of the top spot in late January, it soon returned for a second run at number one on the 1st of February. Grunge had become the new popular brand of rock music as hair metal bands started to fade off. After Kurt's overdose, it was clear that the touring was becoming too much, so a final Asia-Pacific leg would be the last for some time despite plans of an arena tour. During 1992, Nirvana would play just 35 shows compared to Metallica with 167 shows. Just after Nirvana wrapped up their tour of Nevermind, they concluded their run of shows on the Pacific Rim Tour in Hawaii, where Kurt and Courtney had planned to get married as she too had just finished touring with Hole. On the 24th of February 1992, Kurt and Courtney were married on the beautiful Waikiki Beach as Courtney wore a satin lace dress, once worn by American actress Frances Farmer, and Kurt simply wore his green checkered pyjamas and a Guatemalan man purse as he was quote, too lazy to put on a tux. They were wed by a female non-denominational minister with around eight people in attendance, including Dave Grohl. Chris Novoselic was absent from the wedding as he had a falling out with Courtney and Kurt at the time, with Chris and his wife Shelley calling them out on their heroin use, telling them they needed to stop, which Courtney took offence to and told them they could not come. Around this time, Courtney had also fallen pregnant and revealed earlier in January that they were expecting their first child together later in the year, around August. This only added to the media taking a keen interest in the pairing of Kurt and Courtney. During March, rumours began circulating of tension amongst band members over songwriting credits, with Kurt believing he was entitled to a larger percentage of royalties than his other two bandmates, after previously sharing everything 50-50. They eventually settled with Kurt receiving 75% due to his involvement in songwriting, while Chris and Dave agreed to share the remaining 25%, and they were still not overly happy about it, which created tensions. Part of Kurt's demands were that the contract be instilled before the release of Nevermind, retroactively, which meant that Dave and Chris now also owed Kurt royalties. For a moment, the members of Nirvana were unsure if they were going to come out of this without being bitter and angry, or if the band would survive, with Grohl stating that it was, quote, a really strange time, there was tension, there was weirdness. 
The band would take a brief break from one another, with plans to reunite in a couple of weeks. During this time, Kurt and Courtney would move away from Seattle to live in Los Angeles, where they would rent an apartment on Spalding Avenue in the Fairfax District. As there wasn't a lot to do in their apartment, Kurt would paint, sculpt and play guitar and write music while high on heroin. He believes he wrote many great songs while high during this period, but without a doubt Kurt felt homesick as he had never lived out of the Seattle and surrounding areas and was far away from the people and family he knew well. On the 7th of April 1992, Kurt, Chris and Dave met up at Dave's house in West Seattle for their first recording session since Sound City Studios for the Nevermind album. With the help of Dave's roommate and drum tech, Barrett Jones, they recorded three songs in one hour on Barrett's 16-track desk in the basement of their apartment. These songs included Return of the Rat, Oh the Guilt, and Curmudgeon. While Kurt also showed his bandmates other tracks he had been working on, including Very Ape and Francis Farmer will have her revenge on Seattle. These tracks excited the band, and things began looking more likely for a third album. As Dave Grohl stated, we hadn't jammed with each other since we stopped touring for Nevermind, and you know that's a funny feeling. It's like going on a date with one of your exes and trying to have sex again. It's just weird. But I remember Kurt showing us those songs that day, and that's when the light bulb went off and I knew we were going to have another record. Kurt had been stockpiling new songs for quite some time, debuting a track called Penny Royal Tea for the first time live at the OK Hotel in Seattle, the same night Smells Like Teen Spirit was first performed. The session at Grohl and Barrett's apartment had been a frustrating and awkward experience due to previous tensions, but a glimmer of promise was there, so Kurt booked the band in for a two-day session at Word of Mouth Studio in Seattle with Bleach producer Jack Endino for later in October. Kurt chose Endino as he wanted to steer away from the pop-style music they had been playing and were looking for a more of a balance between Bleach and Nevermind. On the 16th of April, an iconic image of Nirvana on the front cover of Rolling Stone magazine would feature Kurt wearing an iconic shirt that read, Corporate magazines still suck. Nirvana's image was now at juggernaut status, and they were referred to as one of the biggest bands in the world at the time. Kurt, however, continued to reject this fame and success, as he would purposely make humorous, unrelated remarks and skip or avoid questions during interviews. He loved his fans, but they wanted more and more of him. He hated the constant cameras in his face, being unable to go down the street normally, and hated riding in limos and staying in fancy hotels as he found it too extravagant and just wasn't him. He just wanted to play good music, be appreciated for that, and earn enough money to be comfortable. From June 21st to July 4th 1992, Nirvana went on a small run of shows around the UK and Europe before Kurt headed home to be with Courtney as the baby was due quite soon and Kurt and Nirvana were all over-exhausted, opting against another American tour. Due to the impending birth of their first child, Courtney had attempted to get clean and detox, and wanted Kurt to do the same, but he struggled to give up the heroin. After months of quitting the heroin and relapsing, Kurt took the steps required to be there for his daughter, and checked himself in for a 60-day detox program at the rehab clinic at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in LA just weeks out from the due date, at the very same hospital where Courtney was due. Just hours before the birth, Courtney had Kurt pulled out of rehab so he wouldn't miss the birth of his first and only child. On the 18th of August 1992 at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in LA, California, Kurt and Courtney welcomed their newborn baby girl into the world, naming her Frances Bean Cobain. 
They came up with the idea for a first name after the Vaseline's guitarist, Francis McKee, and the name Bean, as that was Kurt and Courtney's nickname for her when they first saw her on the sonogram as she looked like a little bean. Kurt at the time was still detoxing and was believed to be almost on the verge of passing out when she arrived. Courtney would later claim that Kurt came in the next day all paranoid and strung out and tried to persuade Courtney, while in hospital, to commit to a suicide pact with him after smuggling in a loaded handgun under his hospital gown, only for Eric Erlinson of Hull to sneak the weapon back out of the hospital for their safety. Despite these apparent events, it's uncertain whether Courtney's claim was legitimate. Kurt was so excited and over the moon about becoming a father, and it is obvious from home videos and photographs of the two, that he was in awe of Francis. The proud new father was seen joking around with Francis in a special photograph of the two, where Kurt has her pacifier in his mouth instead of hers, and is seen in many photographs posing with her. But while this period of their life was supposed to be a happy and enjoyable time, the media began circling with rumours of the pair's heroin usage during the pregnancy, and a report released in September 1992 about the birth of Francis from Linda Hirschberger of Vanity Fair magazine had picked up attention and made matters escalate when the writer revealed that a friend of Courtney's and Courtney herself had told her in an interview that she had been using heroin during her pregnancy and painted the two in a terrible light. Courtney claimed that her words were taken out of context and she had only used in the early stages before knowing she was actually pregnant and then deciding to quit the drug. Courtney had in fact quit for the remainder of the pregnancy, but other claims were made that their baby was born deformed or high on heroin, which simply wasn't the case. While Kurt was still in rehab and Courtney was recovering from giving birth, the two were hardly able to defend themselves in the media, stirring up a storm before the two could even say a word. The report from Vanity Fair led to an investigation into the couple's heroin use by the LA Department of Children and Family Law Services to assess if they were fit to be parents for little baby Francis. While the investigation was underway, the show had to go on, and Kurt with Nirvana would soon venture to England for their next performance. Just 12 days after Francis was born, on the 30th of August 1992, Nirvana performed at the famous Reading Music Festival in England for the second time in their career at Little John's Farm. Nirvana were headlining the festival that day, and the feeling around was that fans were concerned over Kurt's well-being due to all the media rumours and speculation going around about his and Courtney's heroin use, the progress of the investigation, and his own mental health. To make a statement, Kurt appeared on stage, seated in a wheelchair, after being wheeled on by an assistant as he wore a hospital robe and a blonde wig. As he pulls himself up out of the wheelchair and leans towards the microphone to sing a line from The Rose by Leanne Rhymes, as he half-heartedly sings, Some say love, it is a river, before he collapsed to the ground, laying flat on the stage with his arms and legs outstretched. Kurt then jumps up and Nirvana perform an epic 25-song set list, including Boston's More Than a Feeling and a strange solo by Kurt during Smells Like Teen Spirit, perhaps signalling how over the song he was by then. During the show, the band were in a joking type of mood, cracking jokes in between songs, while Kurt sarcastically toys with the idea that the band is splitting up, stating, this is our last show, after rumours got out about their tensions over songwriting credits. On a more serious note, Kurt speaks to the audience about the media circus surrounding Courtney, and how Courtney thinks everybody hates her now. He pleads with the audience to stop giving Courtney a hard time, urging them to chant back, Courtney, we love you, which they did for Kurt. 
Nirvana's performance ends with a routine trashing of the equipment, with Kurt playing distorted versions of Smoke on the Water and the Star Spangled Banner, before giving his guitar to a member of the crowd and speaking with a young fan with Tourette's at the airport, making his day. Just over a week later on the 9th of September 1992, Nirvana were in line to perform at the MTV Music Awards in LA at the Edwin W. Pauley Pavilion. Making matters more interesting was their ongoing feud with Guns N' Roses. For the first time in the band's history, they would share the same building with Axl Rose and Kurt Cobain going head to head. Their feud started off friendly back in 1991 when Axl Rose was seen wearing a Nirvana baseball cap in the Guns N' Roses film clip for Don't Cry, and Axl spoke highly of the band despite hair metal starting to go out of fashion due to the rise of grunge. In February 1992, Axel then requested that Kurt and Nirvana join him at his birthday bash to perform for him, but Kurt declined immediately. This seemed to upset Axel, who was continuously rejected by Kurt. Kurt then revealed, we're not your typical Guns N' Roses band that has nothing to say, while also making reference to the way Axel treats women and his loyal fans by being a no-show or turning up late to gigs. With Kurt stating, When you're a popular figure, you owe a certain responsibility to your fans. I think Guns N' Roses are promoting the wrong values, like sexism and the way they do drugs. I mean, what are they rebelling against? Rebellion is standing up to people like Guns N' Roses. Then in July 1992, Guns N' Roses were planning one of the biggest tours in their history by teaming up with Metallica and hopefully Nirvana. But Nirvana pulled out as they didn't want to be their support act for the 26-show tour and instead had their spot filled by Faith No More. The tour would prove to be exactly what Kurt despised about Axl Rose and the Gunners in the first place, with a riot ensuing during a show in Montreal, including James Hetfield of Metallica having his face burnt by pyrotechnics, followed by shows where Axl was a no-show or late to the show. While on this tour, Axl began shooting his mouth off saying, Nirvana would rather stay at home and shoot heroin with their bitch-ass wives than tour with us. Axel also added fuel to rumours, stating, The only thing alternative music means to me is someone like Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, who basically is a fucking junkie, with a junkie wife, and if the baby's born deformed, I think they both ought to go to prison. These comments only added more fuel to their feud, which brought them to the MTV VMAs for the very first time together. On the night, Nirvana had won Best New Artist in Video and Best Alternative Video for Smells Like Teen Spirit, while Guns N' Roses took out the Michael Jackson Video Vanguard Award and Best Cinematography for November Rain. Before Nirvana was set to perform at the awards ceremony, just after Nirvana completed their sound check, they hung out backstage in the green room with Courtney Love and Baby Francis present. Axel walked by surrounded by bodyguards with Courtney using her loud outspoken personality to get one back at him for his recent comments. As she mockingly said, Hey Axel, do you want to be the godfather to our child? As everyone except for Axel began laughing. Axel responded by saying to Kurt, You shut your bitch up or I'm taking you down to the pavement. Kurt mockingly turned to Courtney and said, Shut up bitch. With everyone once again laughing, Axel walked off frustrated and things started to get more tense from there. Courtney would also face off against Axel's then-girlfriend Stephanie Seymour. As Nirvana headed towards the stage to perform, a drunk Duff McKagan, who was the bass player for the Gunners, came out of nowhere with his bodyguards and confronted Nirvana's bass player Chris Novoselic after hearing of what happened to his bandmate Axel. The two tall lanky bass players got involved in a heated stare-off 
and looked each other up and down before Duff started pushing Chris around and taunting him. Chris was just about to retaliate when the MTV production crew broke up the fight. Nirvana then headed onto stage and was supposed to just perform Lithium, which they did, but not without controversy, as they instead sung the first line from their song Rape Me, which would feature on their next album. As Kurt played the first few chords to the song and sung just a few lines, creating an awkward moment for MTV. Nirvana played Rape Me as a dig at MTV for not allowing them to play the song, instead telling Nirvana to play Lithium. Nirvana then broke into Lithium, creating a lot of sound for just a three-piece. Nirvana ended the performance of Lithium with their routine equipment trashing, with Kurt holding his guitar up to the speakers for feedback before stabbing the amplifiers. Crowd members were getting up onto the stage and stage diving, and Dave stumbled over his drums, but this time Chris did his usual bass throw in the air, but instead collected himself right in the head with his bass guitar. The impact of the guitar knocked Chris to the ground before stumbling around on stage, smashing his bass guitar and leaving the stage, for Kurt and Dave to continue smashing up the set, with Dave then stepping up to the mic and mocking Axel Rose by hilariously saying, Hi Axel, where's Axel? Hi Axel. Legendary guitarist Brian May of Queen came to Chris's aid to see if he was okay before Kurt and Dave joined him. As Chris got medical attention underneath the stage, he was cleared of any serious injury and claims he put it on for effect. Not knowing that Kurt and his bandmates were under the stage, Duff McKagan and Gilby Clark of Guns N' Roses headed out to Nirvana's trailer, assuming they were there, and began rocking the trailer, only to discover that Francis and her nanny were the only ones in there. The only member of the Gunners that stayed out of all the shenanigans was of course Slash, who stated that he didn't have time for that shit and had nothing against Nirvana. In order to have the last laugh, Kurt ventured out to find Axl Rose's piano, set up for the Gunners and Elton John's closing performance of November Rain at the MTV Awards, and laid out a large golly of spit or saliva on Axl's piano. Not until they began playing, as they were seated at their pianos, did Kurt realise that it wasn't actually Axel's piano that he had spat on, but instead was Sir Elton John's. Just a few days after their eventful performance at the MTV Music Awards, at just two to three weeks old, Francis was taken by the Child Welfare Services and awarded to Courtney's sister, Jamie, while the investigation into Kurt and Courtney's heroin use was being carried out. It proved a traumatic experience for Courtney and especially Kurt, who was relishing in his new role as a father. His mental health would have suffered significantly as they feared they would lose their daughter and Kurt was struggling to overcome his heroin addiction. The media now constantly hounded Kurt and Courtney as they attempted to get exclusive stories and leech every detail they could from the controversial couple. The time without Francis was confusing, humiliating and full of paranoia with the world now judging every move they made no matter how personal or how small. At the time, they had been living in LA as Kurt felt a long way from home in Seattle and from his bandmates who were there. All these factors only contributed to Kurt's addiction problems worsening. With all of this going on, it no doubt had an obvious effect on Kurt's mental health. He began spiralling out of control just after leaving his detox course, and when things finally looked better for him, they got worse. His whole experience of becoming a new father was now dampened and traumatic and he would overdose once again during this time, luckily surviving, but all the hard work he had done was now for nothing, thanks to the pesky media. 
Making matters worse was the strain it caused on Kurt and Courtney's relationship. At the end of the day, Kurt and Courtney had a heroin problem and needed to sort their lives out to regain custody. On the 25th of October, 1992, Nirvana were booked in to record with Jack Endino at Word of Mouth Studios, Seattle. Chris and Dave arrived on time, but would soon discover Kurt was not coming, but the following and final day scheduled for recording, Kurt showed up without apology and laid down six new rough recordings, with mainly instrumentals and rusty vocals. But when Courtney arrived, she abruptly ended the session, forcing Kurt to leave with her. Tensions were obviously high within the band, the media were causing more stress on Kurt and Courtney, and Kurt's relationship with Courtney was starting to test the band's patience. While all of this drama was unfolding, on the 14th of December 1992, a compilation album titled Insecticide was released containing a number of alternative recordings, covers, b-sides, previously unreleased material, and tracks previously from EPs. The strange album artwork was designed by Kurt, who painted the image of deformed, crazy-looking dolls and creatures featuring a poppy plant said to be a reference to Kurt's struggles with heroin, pain, and addiction. Originally, the album was going to be released by Sub Pop, calling it Cash Cow, but Geffen Records made a six-figure sum deal with Sub Pop, landing the rights to the songs, and attempted to improve their quality. Kurt had the final say, and only wanted it to be released if he got to do the album artwork. The album included new tracks such as Aero Zeppelin, which featured Dan Peters on drums, and spoke about two of their trend-setting influences, Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin. How Long Now, featuring Chad Channing on drums, and Hairspray Queen, about the style of the 1970s, as well as other fan-favourite tracks such as Sliver, Dive, Being a Son, and Aneurysm. The liner notes from the first initial pressings of the album read, If any of you in any way hate homosexuals, people of different colour, or women, please do this one favour for us. Leave us the fuck alone. Don't come to our shows, and don't buy our records. The album remains often forgotten, despite the quality of tracks on it but lack of promotion meant a lack of overall sales and copies being printed. After several long months of legal battles and performing a handful of sporadic gigs around the USA and South America from September 1992 to late January of 1993, Kurt and Courtney would regain full custody of their daughter Frances after a lengthy legal battle with LA County. But by this point, the mental anguish and time that had passed was horrific for Kurt, but at least Frances was now home. Courtney and Kurt would be required to continue giving blood and urine samples regularly in order to keep Francis in their care, and Kurt was able to give up the heroin for a brief period of time after getting her back. The same story about their ordeal would be running on TV, newspapers and magazines for months on end, driving Kurt crazy and he felt completely embarrassed and ashamed. Kurt's drawings in his notepads and journals began to become much darker, angrier, evil and demonic, with drawings of strange creatures and horrible scribblings of self-loathing. After the ordeal, Kurt revealed that losing his daughter was a fear he lived with every day, saying, I will fight to my death to keep the right to provide for my child. I'll go out of my way to remind her that I love her more than I love myself, not because it's a father's duty, but because I want to out of love. In order to show the true side to Kurt and his love for being a father, they organised to do a story with Spin Magazine featuring the happy, affectionate and often unseen side of Kurt. Francis brought a new sense of light and hope into Kurt's world and he was a great playful and energetic father. While Kurt continued to be a great father, the dark reality was that heroin would once again creep into his life at a more extreme level. 
the evil drug had a hold of him and just wouldn't let him go. Media pressure and relationship troubles with Courtney just led him on back to using again. Kurt became severely reclusive and started falling asleep all the time, which is evident in home videos. His mother Wendy noticed that nearly every week he was getting worse and when they came to visit her he was nodding off, embarrassed and ashamed with sores on his face and body and had been losing a considerable amount of weight for an already slim man. Kurt became ashamed of himself that he had been using again and hated that he couldn't get clean to be a better man for his daughter. Known as one of the hardest drugs to break an addiction to, Kurt just needed something to dull the constant pain he lived in. On the 16th of January 1993, Nirvana would play the biggest gig of their career in Sao Paulo in front of 110,000 screaming Brazilian fans at Estadio Cicero for the Hollywood Rock Festival. But while it was supposed to mark a milestone moment, it would go down as one of their worst live performances, only to be saved by some Nirvana antics as Kurt completely misfired during the performance. When the band walked on stage, Chris and Dave could tell something was up with Kurt. Perhaps this time he had realised that they had gotten far too big than what they had ever imagined. Just before the show started, Kurt had a nervous breakdown and downed a lot of alcohol mixed with painkillers, which made him in Dave Grohl's words, high as fuck. Kurt looked more scruffy and wasted than usual and many of his words were slurred and sung off key. Nirvana opened the show with the Bleach track titled School, with Kurt half-heartedly strumming along at a quarter of the song's usual pace. After a number of songs had been performed with underwhelming vocals, singing the wrong lines, out-of-time guitar riffs from Kurt, and antics such as Kurt stopping in the middle of a song for a cigarette, Chris had had enough and 30 minutes into the gig, he launched his bass guitar across the stage and threw it at Kurt before walking off. Chris soon returned to the stage after their tour manager informed him that if they forfeit the show, that they would lose their appearance fee if they didn't perform for at least 45 of the 90-minute slot. A reluctant Chris returned to the stage, this time refusing to retune his bass, as he believed they couldn't have sounded any worse anyway. Flea of the Red Hot Chili Peppers made a famous appearance on stage, playing saxophone during Smells Like Teen Spirit, and after stumbling through a number of out-of-tune covers of Queen's Wheel Rock You and Led Zeppelin's Heartbreaker, a number of fans began heading for the exit. Those that did, however, would miss the first chance to hear a taste of the next chapter of Nirvana's material, with the song's heart-shaped box and scentless apprentice. The show would be regarded as one of their most disastrous, but at the same time amazing gigs they ever did. However, the effect heroin had on Kurt was clearly evident during this performance, which hadn't yet affected his music up until now. With many wondering what Nirvana's next album would sound like, Dave Grohl revealed, By the time we got to Brazil, it started becoming clear that it wasn't going to be the sugar-coated pop of Nevermind. As Nirvana had a week off to prepare for their next gig in Rio, Brazil, they hung out with members of L7, Alice in Chains and the Red Hot Chili Peppers as they went hand gliding, sightseeing and getting up to no good of course. But at the same time, Nirvana had work to do and on the 19th of January 1993, Kurt and Nirvana and Courtney with Hole decided to head back into their respective studios to work on their next albums and vent all their recent experiences onto paper with Courtney and Hole, we've lived through this, and Kurt and Nirvana, with a dark humour type title for their album, called I Hate Myself and I Wanna Die, something that Kurt had been writing down quite regularly in his journals. 
at BMG Studio in Rio with producer Craig Montgomery. Nirvana this time around were recording more experimental type tracks with songs like Heart Shaped Box, Scentless Apprentice, a track called Moist Vagina, and gallons of rubbing alcohol flow through the strip, which was originally called I'll Take You Down to the Pavement as a reference to Kurt's run-in with Axl Rose. Kurt described the album as a new wave type of direction and that they were reverting back to their more weird, interesting sounds and instrumentals. All Nirvana needed now was a producer that could help them fulfil this vision, and Kurt knew the exact guy for the job. On the 23rd of January 1993, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana performed in Rio, where Kurt could be seen completely losing control. Once again, Kurt's performance was not his best, as he had similar issues to the show in Sao Paulo just a week earlier. Kurt appeared heavily depressed and exhausted as he spits on the camera, shows his penis to the camera, and attempts to pull the stage apart. While some of this was usual for Nirvana, Kurt gave off a painful, defeated vibe that lent towards his heroin addiction starting to get the better of him. No matter what Kurt did, no matter how disturbing or strange, the crowd would still react and cheer for him, which couldn't have been something he overly enjoyed. The mental breakdown on stage worried his bandmates, but Kurt wasn't up to talking about it. Nirvana had recently teamed with a fellow grunge band from Austin, Texas called the Jesus Lizard, releasing their track Puss and Nirvana's Oh The Gill that they put together in 1992 during a session at Grohl's apartment. This double split single would be released later in February through one of Kurt's favourite indie labels Touch and Go. The double single sold quite well reaching number 3 on the Australian alternative chart and number 2 on the UK alternative chart and even managed to reach number 12 on the UK mainstream chart. Puss was a song by the Jesus Lizard and was produced by Steve Albini. Kurt liked the sound of Steve Albini's work and decided he would push for him to be their producer. The problem with Kurt choosing Steve Albini was that he was very opinionated and hot-headed as he was also an underground musician and journalist known for his provocative writing style and Geffen Records were wary of hiring him. Kurt was adamant, however, that this was their guy, as Kurt had previously expressed to Melody Maker magazine in 1992 that the top two of his top ten albums that had changed his life were the Pixies with Surfer Rosa and the Breeders with Pod, which were both produced by Steve Albini, only driving his desire to hire him even more so. When Geffen Records finally approved Albini, he wanted to be clear with Nirvana on what he required from them if he was to take them on. He wanted them to come to the studio fully prepared, no fucking around. He wanted them to be scheduled to finish recording within two weeks, and he informed the band that the best way to gain the most control over their album and protect their vision without their label's intrusion was to hand him the $24,000 fee for the sessions out of their own pocket rather than relying on Geffen Records. Steve Albini then laid out a contract that stated that whatever Nirvana record with him will remain exactly how it is and will not be altered. Nirvana were happy with these terms, and as a hero in their eyes, they just wanted to impress Steve with just how great they were as a band. But Geffen Records weren't happy with this proposition. Chris Novoselic stated, We'd sold enough records to do whatever the hell we wanted. Basically, Nirvana were going to create the album they wanted. Albini was their dream producer, and there wasn't much Geffen Records could do about it. On the 12th of February 1993, Nirvana flew to Minneapolis and headed to Pachyderm Recording Studio in Cannon Falls, Minnesota. Located on a 50-acre property in a secluded private forest, the studio was exactly what the band needed to escape their crazy lives and get back to doing what they loved, which was creating music together. While here, Kurt wasn't tempted to source out his drug dealer, 
He couldn't wander off, or disruptive friends and family couldn't steal him away, as they were too far from everything else, being 50 miles out of the nearest town, in the woods. The only downside was the freezing cold weather, with temperatures below 15 in the day, and down to 30 below overnight. And with snow piling up outside, the band had no choice but to bunker down together in isolation and record, as they also enjoyed games of pool, watching nature videos, supposedly setting things on fire for fun, and making prank phone calls. Steve would also purposely dodge phone calls from the band and record management in order to keep the positive vibe flowing. With no distractions, Nirvana were able to cruise through their recording sessions. Beginning on the 14th of February, which was Valentine's Day, Nirvana started recording their new album. The recording process was natural and easy, with no over-the-top production, and many of the tracks were recorded in just one or two takes. Nirvana appreciated Steve's raw, stripped-back and recorded exactly how it sounds approach, which matched their vision perfectly. By the end of the week, they had completed basic versions of 17 songs, but when everything was running so smoothly, an uninvited guest showed up being none other than Kurt's wife, Courtney who had said she was missing Kurt. For a moment, the mood of their positive isolated studio changed, as Courtney was said to have caused tension by criticising Kurt's work and feuding with Dave and Chris. But it didn't disrupt them for too long, as they would finish recording one day ahead of their scheduled two-week sessions. Steve and Nirvana sat and shared a cigar and some wine, celebrating their fulfilling experience, before leaving feeling as though they were finally proud of one of their albums. With Kurt saying, quote, it's the easiest recording we've ever done, hands down. Albini would just take a flat fee of $100,000 for his service, and unlike most producers who demand royalties, Steve knocked back a potential $500,000 in royalties for just his flat rate, as he saw it as an insult to the artist and immoral, as he obviously respected Nirvana's work. Albini thought the trio were brilliant musicians and found Dave Grohl to be, quote, an absolute beast of a drummer. During the middle of March, Kurt rang Steve Albini and started second-guessing himself after Gary Gersh of Geffen Records said he hated the record and that it sounded like crap, with too much emphasis on drums rather than Kurt's vocals, and that the bass lines were too low. Kurt then went back on this and said, no, this is it, we are Nirvana and this is the record, only to again call Steve just weeks later, requesting that they remix some of the songs. A frustrated Albini listened to the album again, and couldn't find no flaws and soon wondered if something was up with Kurt and if his drug habits had worsened. Kurt, after being so proud of what he had created, then started saying he felt no emotional connection to the songs and that he just felt numb. Soon tensions arose between Albini and Kurt over the production of the album and soon it leaked into the media that Geffen Records weren't happy with what they had to release, causing unwanted drama. Kurt eventually got his own way, and Heart Shaped Box and All Apologies were remixed by R.E.M. producer Scott Litt, with Kurt adding his own backing vocals and instrumentals. After recording their latest album, things would take a dramatic turn. On the 23rd of March, after a family court ruling in LA, Kurt and Courtney received some good news, as they were now free from being supervised by child services. This wouldn't be great news in terms of Kurt's health and Francis's well-being, however, as now Kurt and Courtney were free to use heroin without submitting blood and urine tests, as they were no longer under surveillance. Little did Courtney know that Kurt was using again, but Courtney had problems of her own and started getting into more prescription medications and becoming addicted to them. Around six weeks later, on the 2nd of May, Kurt returned to their Seattle Sands homestead, 
and exhibited signs he was on the verge of another heroin overdose as he was shaking profusely and seemed dazed and confused. He revealed he had been still using heavily and confirming many people's concerns. Courtney believes she reversed this overdose after administrating a number of drugs such as Valium, Benadryl, Tylenol, Codeine and Buprenorphine to block the opioids or heroin from causing an overdose as he vomited the heroin up. Just a month later, things appeared to get worse again. On the 4th of June 1993, Kurt was charged upon investigation with domestic assault and his firearms were confiscated after the police were called over for a heated push and shove argument that Courtney believes was over Kurt's firearms, but Kurt believed it was also about his heroin use. Kurt spent three hours in lockup for allegedly choking Courtney after he splashed juice in her face when they were listening to loud punk music and began arguing. But these claims were later dropped after she stated it wasn't true and that the neighbours had built up a fake story after hearing the loud music, despite making this statement out to the police herself. Courtney said she was relieved, however, to have Kurt's three weapons confiscated, including a semi-automatic Colt AR-15, Beretta 380, and Taurus 380, along with ammunition clips. It was never confirmed what the true side to this incident was and whether Kurt did in fact react like that. He was released with a $950 bail and no charges were carried out by police or Courtney. The following month in late July, Nevermind finally exited the Billboard 200 chart in the US after 92 weeks, making way coincidentally for Nirvana to reveal their new upcoming third studio album to the world. On the 23rd of July, Nirvana booked a show at New York's Roseland Ballroom for the New York Annual New Music Seminar and invited representatives of international media outlets to attend the special concert. But before the show had even started, Kurt once again almost died from a heroin overdose that very same day. While staying in a nearby hotel, Kurt shot up late in the afternoon before the important gig, only to be found by Courtney after hearing a fud. She screamed, alerting Francis Bean's male nanny, Michael Kelly Dewitt, and Anton Brooks, Nirvana's press agent, who came to her aid. Slumped behind the toilet with a syringe in his arm was a blue-coloured, lifeless Kurt Cobain. They both splashed him with cold water and punched him in the stomach repeatedly, eventually reviving him. After overhearing the commotion, hotel security came running to the scene, where Anton Brooks convinced them not to inform the authorities as it would leak to the press and instead they helped clear the room of any substances by flushing them down the toilet and the incident was then sworn to secrecy. That very same evening, Kurt got onto the stage, pretending like nothing had happened. Not many there that night could tell the difference as Nirvana comfortably performed nine tracks for 3,500 people. Those attending that night were handed a cassette tape of the album that included the title In Utero as they ditched their previous controversial title. Yet again, another big occasion for the band was overshadowed by Kurt's drug problem. It was now clear Kurt had a serious life-threatening problem and something needed to be done. The following day, Kurt told UK journalist Amy Raffel a chilling but contradictory statement that gave a good indication on where he was at and why he was holding on. As he said, I believe if you die, you're completely happy, and your soul somehow lives on, and there's this positive energy. I'm not in any way afraid of death. I'm afraid of dying now. I don't want to leave behind my wife and child, so I don't do things that would jeopardise it. I don't want to die. I've been suicidal most of my life. I didn't really care if I lived or died, and then there were plenty of times when I wanted to die, but I never had the nerve to actually try it. 
quite a confronting statement of mixed emotions and confusion. Without a doubt, Kurt was being reckless and at times wanted his life to end, but he was also holding on for Francis and Courtney. He stated that he doesn't do things to jeopardise this, yet the day before, he almost recklessly died. Kurt was clearly torn over life or death. A few days later, he returned to Seattle to hide away from the media and recover. During this time, he attempted to detox and sober up as plans for another tour for their new album, In Utero, were in the works beginning in late September, despite expressing that he was done with long tours. As Kurt's world started to crumble around him, Nirvana would be on the verge of releasing their third and final studio album as a band. In part three, we take a look at the final months of Kurt's life, the cryptic messages hidden in his songs such as Heart Shaped Box, the incredible MTV Unplugged performance, and Kurt's tragic death, featuring the interesting and controversial conspiracies surrounding his death that are begging for the mysterious case to be reopened. Thank you for tuning in to part two. Make sure you listen to part three as we wrap up the incredible story of Kurt Cobain's life, career and legacy. For more information regarding this episode, including weekly updates and more, head to our Facebook page at Lyrics of Their Life podcast or our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to give back for the hard work that goes into it, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a review on iTunes, let your friends know about what they've been missing out on, and click the free subscribe button to the podcast so you can receive new episodes direct to you when they become available. If you would like to support the podcast financially, then feel free to head to Patreon, where you can pledge your support for as little as $1 a month. Every bit of support is greatly appreciated, and it means I can continue bringing you more great episodes in the future. Once again... Thank you all for listening. I'm your host, Adam Hampton, and this is Lyrics of Their Life.